Our first scripture reading this morning is found in Deuteronomy chapter 15, verses 1 to 11. At the end of every seven years, you must cancel debts. This is how it is to be done. Every creditor shall cancel any loan they have made to a fellow Israelite. They shall not require payment from anyone among their own people, because the Lord's time for canceling debts has been proclaimed. You may require payment from a foreigner, but you must cancel any debt your fellow Israelite owes you. However, there need be no poor people among you, for in the land the Lord your God is giving you to possess as your inheritance, he will richly bless you. If only you fully obey the Lord your God and are careful to follow all these commands I am giving you today. For the Lord your God will bless you as he has promised, and you will lend to many nations, but will borrow from none. You will rule over many nations, but none will rule over you. If anyone is poor among your fellow Israelites in any of the towns of the land the Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward them. Rather, be open-handed and freely lend them whatever they need. Be careful not to harbor this wicked thought. The seventh year, the year for canceling debts, is near, so that you do not show ill will toward the needy among your fellow Israelites and give them nothing. They may then appeal to the Lord against you, and you will be found guilty of sin. Give generously to them, and do so without a grudging heart. Then, because of this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in everything you put your hand to. There will always be poor people in the land. Therefore, I command you to be open-handed toward your fellow Israelites who are poor and needy in your land. The second reading is found in 1 John chapter 3, verse 16 to 24. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. This is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask because we keep his commands and do what pleases him. And this is his command to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. The one who keeps God's commands lives in him and he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave us. Thanks. If I can add another short little verse, Psalm 24, verse 1 starts, says, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. And so we're spending the month uh, in a series of areas of our life that we often maybe don't think about in terms of our faith 
or think of under maybe the lordship of God in the same way that we do other avenues of spiritual formation. And so this morning we're talking about economics and money. There are over 2,000 verses in the Bible that talk about money. And to put that in perspective, there are only 500 on prayer and 500 on faith. Money is about 15% of what Jesus talked about. And we don't talk about it very much. And so now I get to talk about it. Uh, there are many different ways that Christians have approached wealth over the years. Some of you may be familiar with this book, Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger, a Biblical Study. And I must admit that I, I read it in preparation for this, and I, it was challenging. Um, but I was wondering, like, okay, what have people said about this, or what are some of the criticisms about this, right? Which is always good to do when we're, we're reading. And so I, I found this title of a book that's called Productive Christians in an Age of Guilt Manipulators, a Biblical Response. Um, some of us are like, yes, I'll take that book. That sounds way more appealing to read about uh, this morning. Um, and I have to trust that people who are writing a book like this uh, are doing so from good intentions and not self-protection, right? I have to trust that they are, this is their conviction, and I, I hopefully could listen to them. Um, but I recognize that with a morning like this, the struggle is to completely write me off and tune me out based on what I'm saying. Um, that, that immediately we'll start to, to come up with reasons why I don't have to listen to Graham because of this thing I know about Graham and how he lives. So I want to start by just saying that um, I am a hypocrite. And I hope to be quite vulnerable with you later around my own relationship with money um, as it relates to this topic. And what you're getting this morning is, is my take on money and um, a really a, a look at my process over the last little while about how I relate to money given the position that I am in the world. And I hope you can hear it for that and stay tuned in for that. And don't throw me out too quickly. Thank you. Um, we're going to look at these verses, but first I thought we'd look a little bit at economics. And I am and not an economist, although I did very well in my economics classes in university. Um, but very, very simply, money is a tool that we use to exchange goods and services, right? Um, it's something that we've built ourselves to facilitate our relationships with one another. Um, and we can do all sorts of things with money. We can buy things like diapers for our children. We can buy things like video games. And this may uh, come as a shock, but I really want us to think about this, that hard work and the amount of work we put in does not correlate, really, to the amount of money we get. Uh, there are like arbitrary values and, and kind of market forces that mean that certain people have a set of, of skill sets or can get a job that makes a lot more money than others. I think the most extreme example of this is stay-at-home parents. You are part of the unpaid workforce. Um, and if anyone ever asks you what you do, you should probably tell them that you're managing Canada's most valuable resource. That's what you're doing. You're not a stay-at-home parent. You're managing Canada's most valuable resource. And I would challenge any of you to go up to one of our stay-at-home parents and say, I work harder than you. No, but let me know how it goes, right? Like, the amount of, <laughs> the amount of work we put in, or what, like one of our farmers, it's harvest season. Go up to them and say, I work harder than you, right? When they're struggling to get by. Uh, the most extreme example would be that I just learned about a man uh, whose internet name is Ninja. I should know this maybe before as a youth pastor, but uh, he makes... Uh, more than $100,000 a month playing Fortnite. People watch him play Fortnite and pay to watch him play a video game. So he's making $100,000 for sitting and playing video games for 12 hours a day, and some of you are staying home with your kids, which is a struggle, and making nothing. So, but it is quick 
how we tend to equate value with money. It is quick how our self-worth is tied up in our money, even though the output we're putting into the world and the contribution we're, we're making into the world can have no value and still get us a lot of money. I'm sorry, senior youth who like that guy who plays Fortnite. I think that's ridiculous, but he's making it work. And our relationship with money goes further in that none of us have the same relationship to money. There's no, um, there's no value that each of us feels for the same amount of money. So let's do a thought experiment real quick. I want you to imagine that after church today, you go home and you do your Sunday afternoon routine. And at the end of the night, you just check uh, your online bank account or however you kind of go over your finances and you realize as you crunch the numbers that your entire worth as a family unit right now is $8,000. So just pause for a second in your mind. Some of us are like, yes, finally, the debt is gone, like we're doing well. And some of us are like, holy expletive, what just happened? We're done. We're finished. There, how could we get to this state? What has gone wrong? This is terrible. Same number. Very different reactions depending on our experience and where we're at. I want us to keep all these in mind as we explore some of these biblical passages this morning. And if we, you hear nothing else from me this morning, I'd like you to hear this. I'd like you to hear that God's heart is for good relationships between his children. God's desire is for us to have good relationships, and we can see that evidenced in different ways. Uh, we had a passage read to us by De from Deuteronomy this morning, and Deuteronomy is not the funnest book of the Bible, um, which makes sense because in our day-to-day -day lives, we don't read a lot of law books, right? If I go to the library, um, I'm looking for a fun story or, or something compelling, not Kitchener City bylaws, which are very interesting, by the way. Uh, because I live in Kitchener, um, I know for a fact that we... Uh, in our bylaws and our code of rules of what we value can have campfires and chickens. Waterloo, no campfires, and I think just recently you got chickens. Kitchener's a really good time. Waterloo, it sucks to suck sometimes. But we can, <laughs> I will say this for you, Waterloo, I take the Iron Horse Trail a lot when I'm biking, and there's this beautiful moment very close to Uptown when you're going towards Kitchener, and there's a big sign on the side of this bike path that says, thank you for visiting Waterloo. And immediately after you pass that sign, the biking trail just goes. <laughs> and I laugh every time I go on it because I think, how many people called into Waterloo before? They're like, it's not our zone. It's Kitchener's problem. So there's this very nice sign to say, call Kitchener. Get them to fix your darn road. Um, you've got that going for you, Waterloo. But these bylaws and these laws that we have and these codes that we see in the Bible give us a glimpse into the values of the people who write them and what to them when they're writing. And so that's what we have in a lot of these old books. If you're a fan of Deuteronomy, get really excited because in November, after our series on politics, we're gonna start a series on Leviticus. So uh, it's really great that you guys are still coming and we're excited to continue that with you. But we can read these books and we can see what are the priorities of the laws that God sets out for these people? What are the laws that God ordains and how are they supposed to treat each other? Um, and we see this in Deuteronomy, that at the end of seven years, all debts must be canceled amongst the community. Uh, this is an utterance of earlier Levitical laws around giving the land time to rest, giving people a chance to rest. Um, and uh, this is a really unique law at the time because if we look at other kind of Eastern laws that are written around the same time, poor people have a much lower class status 
than a good, hardworking individual. Written into the law, like written into the law are conditions for poor people, whereas this law is kind of completely treating everyone on the same level as far as their dignity as a human being. And that's pretty radical for the time period and maybe a little radical for today. Um, this verse goes on. It was a longer passage that we had read to us. Um, we, and they get, so, so Leviticus is written and then Deuteronomy kind of follows it. And it's almost this caveat as if they've kind of lived with this law for a little while and they're starting to get technical with it. The passage picks up, it says, be careful not to harbor this wicked thought. Well, if I lend to them, you know, the seventh year is coming. It's coming, canceling debts here. So if I lend to them, they're not going to be able to pay me back and I'll have to follow that law. Be careful with this wicked thoughts so that you do not show ill will towards the needy among your fellow Israelites and give them nothing. They may then appeal to the Lord against you and you will be found guilty of sin. Give generously to them and do so without a grudging heart. Then because of this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in everything you put your hand to. It's almost like they know what we're going to try to do, right? We're going to look for the technical way to make this as easy as possible on ourselves. Be like, well, it's the year six. I'm not going to lend to you because, you know, we got to reverse this whole thing in a few months. That's not going to go well for me. So they kind of write it in more. And the whole thing is couched in this idea of remembering our own bondage and oppression. You were once slaves. I just got you out of Egypt. Don't do that to each other again. Don't get each other in unnecessary bondage. Let me write something into the law that keeps this renewal happening for you. And we don't really have much of an idea of whether this was ever followed, right? Surprise, surprise, sometimes people write things in the Bible and the communities don't know what to do with them or don't follow them or kind of ignore them because they're difficult. Uh, we don't know throughout the history of Israel if they ever followed these patterns of renewal, but we do know that when they were exiled, so when they lost their land, when they were taken over by other countries and prophets and people are just trying to deal with this psychological damage of like, we were chosen, what happened to us? They reflect back on some of these laws and they point to the treatment of the poor as some of the reasons for the exile. Not all the reasons, but certainly some of them. They're trying to make sense of this disaster and they notice this lack of care for the poor and the oppressed. Amos 2, verse 6 to 7 says, They sell their innocent for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample on the heads of the poor as on the dust of the ground, and they deny justice to the oppressed. And archaeologists have been able to go back and find that um, closer to the exile, the difference in sizes of housing got more extreme in their communities. It seems that right before they were taken over, the rich were getting richer and the poor were getting poorer. And this is where a phrase sometimes gets thrown out, God is partial to the poor. And I, I don't know if that's true, right? Like I, I just think God is very, very fair and just. That equality is something that he has a sense of and an understanding of that we don't and how that should work. And Jesus propels this further. Famously, he does this with all the Old Testament laws. He's famous for saying, you have heard it said, but I say to you. And he takes something that would have been followed technically and tries to get at the heart of what it meant. He emphasizes again to give nothing, give and expect nothing in return. At maybe its most extreme in Matthew 25 when Jesus is painting a picture of what the afterlife will look like. People are separated into sheep and goats based on how they treated the people who needed clothes, needed food, and who were imprisoned. Did they get visitors? This is a scary story because it seems like at some point forgiveness stops and we're sorted that there's forgiveness if we repent, but at, at some point we're going to miss out. And that's, they're extreme examples that I find uncomfortable. 
if we continue into the early church, we can look at Acts and these early Christians, full of the Holy Spirit, start to sell everything they have and share it amongst each other. There's no mention of a 10% sort of condition there because they're, they're giving up everything they have to be in community with one another. And we just scratch our heads and go, this is ridiculous. I don't get it. And there's a lot more, 2,000 verses. And I am now making money. Uh, and I'm challenged by what to do with it. As a Christian, I've won the lottery. I'm born in Canada. And in this current economic system, what do I do with it? We've seen patterns by now in our society of how everyone kind of working for their own interests can lead to some pretty disastrous global results. That, that me having a surplus of food, that we, so like as a, this is a big example, but like we're asking like why are people poor or somewhere else, why don't they have enough food? Why can't we just give them food? And it gets complex, right? Because all of us in our own self-interest kind of make these systemic sins happen. So if there's a surplus of grain in the Midwest, they're going to sell to the highest bidder because that's what's best for them, right? They're, they're trying to make more money. Um, so let me give it to the, the Russians who are going to give it and feed it to their cattle. That's great for them. Uh, they can pay more than that country in maybe Southeast Asia that needs the food but can't afford the same price that they will. So the food goes over there. And their stock goes up because their cattle are healthy and they're doing well. And I have a pension. And I have investments. And I'd like them to grow. And I'd like them to grow by investing in companies that are doing well. And companies, so all of us in our own kind of self-interest, just doing what seems most necessary for us and what we're told to do and what seems best, tend to have some pretty disastrous global results. I don't want to jump too much into that because um, we're looking at that a bit more next week, I think. Our, our economy focuses on growth. This is maybe different than the ancient world. That there's kind of assumed sense that we're always going to grow. And for things to grow, we have to take something that was once free, like water, or we have to take something that we used to do for each other as a gift relationship. And we have to turn it into something we can sell to each other for this thing to continue to grow. And it will only work for so long because we've only got this one little planet, right? This is a great quote by Alanis. I'm not going to try her last name because I'm going to kill it. But when the last tree is cut, the last fish is caught, the last river is polluted, when the air, the breath, when to breathe the air is sickening, we will realize too late that wealth is not in our bank accounts and that we can't eat money. And we will run it if we continue this. Gandhi famously said, there's enough for the world's need, but not enough for the world's greed. And so in light of this, I am personally just really struggling right now. What should my savings rate be? Should I have a savings rate? What goods should I be consuming? What kind of vacation is it appropriate for my wife and I to take? We just spent 10 days in California, and it was fantastic. I think that 20-year-old Graham would have a sit-down with 26-year-old Graham and have some things to say to him about where he's spending money. Do I trust God's provision anymore? I've been uncomfortable with money before I have. I've taken jobs that didn't pay because I knew the work was going to be good, and I felt like God took care of me, and I don't do that anymore. I have a lot of fear and control around my own security and the security of me and my wife going forward in this life. I have a pair of shoes that I just wear when I'm biking. That's all they're for, just when I'm on my bicycle. What is appropriate for me as a Western Christian following after the heart of God? 
subjecting my life to his kingdom values and his will being done? What should his lordship look like in terms of my finances when people and many Christians are struggling? Is it 10%? And this is not a new question that any of us are asking. The church throughout its history has been asking this question and trying to discern our relationship to money given these texts and the world we live in and what's appropriate. And Thomas Aquinas is a foundational Christian thinker. A lot of our maybe modern university system can be attributed to him and a lot of our theology. And, and one person summarizing his thoughts on money put it this way, which I think is helpful for us. At least it's been helpful to me. Summarizing Thomas Aquinas' thoughts, he says, all goods are necessary, useful, or superfluous. What is necessary to us, we must keep. What is useful, we can keep or we can give it away. But what is superfluous belongs to the poor. What is necessary, what is greed, what is superfluous? And I'm not going to tell you what those things are this morning because I don't know your story. I don't know what you're going through. I don't know where you've been or what your relationship is to money right now. I only know myself. I'm not going to ask you and try to say what those things are, but what I do want to ask of our community is that we ask this question once a month in our family units. What is necessary? What is good? What is just superfluous here? What are we holding back? Are we enacting God's justice in our buying, our selling, and our working? I think we need to ask these questions in our family units. Christians have worked through this in other ways. There's the example of the medieval church for a time did not charge interest. The early church, we see this evidence of a shared community of goods. John Wesley is famous for saying that if he died with money in his pocket, that it would have been stealing from the poor. Even in our own context, a number of years ago, some of the old order Mennonites in our region really pushed hard against the Canadian pension plan. They didn't want to join this giant nationwide system for support because they felt like it got in the way of their, their joy and their opportunity to care for one another. A Christian community taking a different approach to their finances and supporting of one another. And we're a small community in a big world set on infinite growth at the continued expense of our planet and our poor. And I, I think we know that. I know it. And for the Christian, I think, what I will say is that I think the good of our neighbors must be over the pursuit of our own profit. My right to profit should not come at the cost of my neighbor being able to eat. And that's where the second verse comes in, 1 John 3. This community of early churches, they've got this kind of shared community of goods, and they're living out this, this faith, and they're trying to figure out how do we incarnate it the same way that Jesus was incarnated? What is the physical manifestation of our faith? What should this look like? Is Sunday morning like this wor worthless if we're not doing something during our week? And the verse says, if anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or, or speech but with actions and truth. I'm not advocating any of us get a free ride and get to be lazier that we're feeding off of some sort of system. John's desire was that we love one another. And it's out of this love and relationship and desire for reconciliation that these works are done. The, the challenge for Christians like me is when someone says, you say you love the poor, can you name two of them? And I can't. I have this ideological idea, that, but I don't actually have many relationships with any poor people that I know of that would really, could use the benefit that I seem to be now possessing more and more and more. I, and I think this wrestling has to be done in our homes. If we say to love them, can we name them? And I think it looks like a lot of alternatives 
in our personal life, but perhaps more importantly, I think in our community practices as well. Um, I think it's fair to say that all of us, we, we're just marinating in this culture of buying the next thing. When was the last time you bought a phone because you needed a new phone versus this one looks kind of better? We're all sort of addicted to this superfluousness. I think we probably need an accountability circle to work on this addiction together. It's not meant to be done alone. We need to cling to one another so the dominant culture around us does not pull us away from God's truth. And what a witness that would be. What if we were known for that? What if it was the way we treated the poor amongst us? Historically, that has been the case at the church. I ask somebody on your way home today what they think of Christians. It's not how we treat one another with our finances, I don't think. And so I'm interested to know what we can do as a community. I'm not interested in, in what our government is going to do, but I want to know what we're going to do. One option that people look at is having a set income, right? So you say, like, okay, we've, we've crunched it, and we, we've just tried to discern ongoing what is necessary versus what is good, and so we've, we've capped our income here, and anything we need after that, we're going to give away because just we know what we need to live in our society, and that's what it is. If you're doing this right now, please come talk to me. I, after the service, I would love to talk to you about what this looks like in your life and how you've figured it out, especially with those of you with kids, because we're not there yet, and we're going to be, and we're trying to figure this out. What does that look like? Christians all over Southern Ontario do that. Would we rather be known for earning a million dollars or over the course of our life giving a million dollars? What about all the stuff we have? We have space here. Could we open, I've thrown the idea of it before, but like a shared library of things. I have a lot of camping gear I would love to lend you out, and thank you to those of you who have lent me camping gear before, so I don't have to go buy it. What a great way to redistribute resources. We have a benevolence fund. If you are struggling right now, we have a fund of money to help support people in our community who are in need. Get engaged with this. There are mechanisms in place, and I'm so happy to be part of a church that has that. How do we support one another through life stages, or do we kind of offshoot it to our insurance companies or different kind of policies that are out there? Are we kind of in a community that loves one another and is working together? We can host people. I want to conclude with this idea of communion. This is not my idea. I wish it was, because I think it's brilliant. But communion is the coming together of bread, right? It's a simple, it's old, it's, it's a necessary food. The coming together of bread and wine. Wine is quite a superfluous good. I just spent a few days in Napa Valley with my wife, and it was lovely, but highly superfluous. It's a luxury afforded and enjoyed by only a few. Bread and wine. They come together breaking to form the body of Christ. Can we break down the barriers in our own lives and in our own hearts that keep us from community, from this love that First John talks about, of living our faith out in word and truth. As I said when I started, the temptation with a message like this is to immediately come up with all the reasons why you don't have to listen to me. Um, because of the ways you see me not practicing some of these things in my own life. And so Rachel and I have talked, and I, um, I've, I've got a challenge for you that I'd, I'd really honestly like to invite you into as I wrestle with these questions in my own life. I've printed off all of our finances for the last year. Where have we spent money? What we've done with it? And it's a little rough, and there's 
little things that won't make sense, so we should talk about it. But let us have you over for dinner. Take this copy home of all the money we've spent the last year. Take it home and look over it and ask me questions. And help us figure this out. Help us look at what's necessary in our life and what's superfluous. What do we need? It's here, and I'll, it's a, a lot of paper, so I didn't want to print off a lot of copies. If you want it, I'll send it to you. Because I think we need to be willing to have this conversation with each other. It shouldn't be so stigmatized. I do ask that if you take my personal finances, you would seek out someone in your own life, not me, who's willing to look over yours as well. And let's start to just have the conversation about where we're at and what we're doing, and is this in line with what God needs of us and wants of us. I read a compelling quote in my research for this sermon, and it said, the church consists of a community of loving, the church should consist of a communities of loving defiance. Instead, it consists largely of comfortable clubs of conformity. And I'd ask us to think about which church we'd like to be or which one we feel like we should be. Let's talk about money at discussion tables. I really hope you're open to talking about it. And if you would like our finances, they're up here. Because it, we need to be open about this. We shouldn't hide it. Thanks for listening and hopefully not tuning me out too quickly. <laughs>